0: With the internet blowing up with the photos of Space Shuttle Endeavor being stacked for the first time since retirement at the California Science Center, we wanted to talk to someone
1: who gets to look after a space shuttle. And while we were in Washington, D.C. last month, we got to speak to Dr. Jennifer Lavassa, who, amongst other things, is the Smithsonian curator for the Space Shuttle.
0: Have you ever visited a Space Shuttle? Let us know about your experience via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on threads, Instagram, and
1: Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And come and join us at patreon.com forward slash Space and Things. But right now, it's time for episode 181 of the Space and Things Podcast. Oh my God. to space and things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney, and I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 181 of our podcast. How you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, a little bit rumpled looking right now,
0: <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at myself on the on the Zoom. Thing. Thankfully, none of y'all can see me. I can. Dave is like, oh my god uh." Other than that, nothing
1: exciting going on How are you doing, Dave? Yeah, not too bad, thanks Not too bad So shall we crack on with this week's topic? Absolutely, let's go Okay, as we said in the intro, the internet, or the kind of places on the internet where Emily and I hang out, has seen a number of incredible images and videos come out from the California Science Center, where they have successfully lifted up the Space Shuttle Endeavour and stacked it with an external tank and two solid rocket motors. The shuttle is currently shrink-wrapped for protection and... They're about to start building a brand new building around this fully stacked shuttle. But it's great to see a shuttle standing up again and looking like it's ready for launch. So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about the Space Shuttle and speak to someone who looks after one. Well, our trip to Washington, D.C. provided us with the perfect
0: opportunity as we sat down with Dr. Jennifer Lavasser, who is currently the curator of the space shuttle for the Smithsonian. Some of you may have heard Jennifer before if you've listened to the Apollo 13-minute podcast about the Apollo 13-minute movie. But if not, here's her biography as written on the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum website. Dr. Jennifer Lavasser received her B.A. in history from the University of Michigan in 1999 an M.A. in American Studies from George Washington University in 2002 and a Ph.D. in History from George Mason University in 2014. Her book, Through Astronaut Eyes, Photography from Early Human Spaceflight, which was published through Purdue University Press in July 2020, looks at the cultural significance of astronaut photography. She serves as the responsible curator for the museum's astronaut cameras, chronographs, the Space Shuttle and International Space
1: Station programs. Prior to her work at the National Air and Space Museum, she worked as a historic interpreter at George Washington's Mount Vernon. She started her Smithsonian career with an internship at the National Portrait Gallery's Department of Photography. There, she catalogued photographs acquired through donation and developed strategies for recording portrait information in the museum's electronic database.
0: In over 20 years at the museum, Jennifer has worked on a variety of projects, including artifact loans, the biennial mutual concerns of Air and Space Museums Conference, and as a department representative on digital projects. She curated the 2015 Spacewalk Anniversary exhibit outside the spacecraft, 50 years of extravehicular activity, co curated One World Connected, and is working on a new human spaceflight exhibit. So
1: let's talk to Dr. LaVassa. Houston, Space and Things Base here.
0: Dave and Emily have landed on a great episode. So stay tuned for more
2: Space and Things.
1: Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Before we get stuck into talking about the shuttle, we'd like to find out a little bit about our guests. So was spaceflight always a big part of your life? Or is it something that you've just ended up working in?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. So I at the time, I don't think I really saw it as being this thing that was part of my life, but it was. And it kind of accumulated and magically turned into a career back in 2002. So I grew up in southeastern Michigan, which was on the border with Toledo. In fact, I was born in Toledo, Ohio. And our nightly television featured the senator from Ohio in the 1980s, John Glenn. And so I was very, very... Aware of who the astronauts were, uh, I would sometimes visit different places, um, museums in particular in the, in the in Southeast Michigan or otherwise where I would you know certainly have learned about astronauts. I have often and even blogged about it uh, at some point in the past about sitting on the floor in fourth grade watching Challenger. So a number of these kinds of incidents happened over the course of my life that I didn't really think meant anything, but they certainly did. So. Um, once I got to college, I went to the University of Michigan, and when John Glenn was going to fly, I was not going to miss that day. I had an Italian Renaissance class, and I made an excuse that I had a dentist appointment and didn't go to class because I wanted to go down and watch the lunch. But I innocently thought no one would ever show up to something like that in the middle of a of a day of classes, And I was amongst 200 other students watching it in the Michigan Union. I was, in fact, like late to the game. (laughs) So by the time I got there to watch that, it was just, I kind of looked around and realized we all had been children in fourth grade or something when we sat and watched Challenger. So clearly we have this thing. And no one moved a muscle until the moment we knew that 73 seconds had passed, basically. We kind of have that burned into our psyche you know, that you can't move a muscle until you know that they've gone for throttle up and then everything can, you know, we can all go back to class and do our thing. So it was just this very surreal experience. And moving here to DC to go to graduate school, it did not enter my mind that I would end up working. I I knew I I was, I had gotten a degree in American history. So I assumed I would get a job at an American history museum. Yeah, (laughs) And I didn't really think, oh, it's going to be a technology air and space museum. But of course, as soon as I Sat down, no joke, sat down in the interview. It just sort of struck me all of a sudden. Oh, my gosh, this is where I belong.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's very
2: strange. (laughs) So
0: the shuttle program is enormous. It was launching for 30 years, but really its development was over 40 years. So the program can be broken up into several different phases. How do you do this as a curator for those who may not be familiar with its history?
2: Uh, It can be really challenging, but one of the things that we draw on as curators in the museum is the collection. And one of the most wonderful things that I've come to discover in the last almost four years of being the curator for the space shuttle program is the richness of our artifact collection to tell the earliest part of the story, which is the development of the idea, the actual what, how is this going to work and fulfill the promises. And so it's that pre-launch development phase the a b c you know all these different phases that it goes through in de- development and we have a really wonderful model collection and so when we have an exhibition that deals with trying to in some ways relate that story whether it be near space shuttle discovery or here in the national Mall building those models play a huge role in that because you can talk about solid propellants versus liquid propellants mm-hmm. you can talk about reusability Partial reusability versus full reusability. What does that really look like? And so that's how we, we've done it over the last, say, 15 years or so, is really to set those pairings or those groupings together to be able to show you as a visitor, this is what this looks like versus what this looks like. And the same thing is true for the next phases. So we can show you what astronauts were wearing in the early shuttle program, which looks dramatically different from what they wear post-Challenger. Um, and certainly for the final phases, it's a little bit different. It's much more complex. We're talking much more about ISS at that point.
0: So this is maybe a controversial question, but how do you reconcile the shuttle's known I, I mean, the known issues? Because obviously it was a flawed program with its hopes and promises and, and its triumphs as well.
2: So i spent a lot of time thinking about this, especially now that I've started to publish. I, I had been publishing on other things, other topics, more Apollo era stuff for so long. And I finally got my opportunity to really think through this in the last six to nine months is how it, do I personally reconcile with it? Because it was such a part of my childhood and I'm watching launches and, you know, learning who the astronauts were. And now as a professional in this world, meeting these people who are involved in this program. And that's really where my reconciliation comes is with the people who are mm-hmm. involved in it. And it's certainly not just astronauts. So having met people when Discovery was brought here in 2012, meeting the workers who installed things in the payload bay or would, you know, do all these various things. And we still work with some of those people who are involved, who were involved back um, when the shuttle was operating. And so the story that I focus on for the most part are the individuals who contributed to The successes that do exist. I don't think it's that hard to really recognize that the space shuttle was responsible for, I mean, we would not have an international space station if there was not a space shuttle that largely has to come from something that can carry these. It could happen other ways. There's no denying that there are lots of different ways to do things to get to space. But, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope and so many other things that are launched through the 80s and 90s, um, the scientific work that's done, just the amount of learning and understanding about low Earth orbit and then thinking about what can be done elsewhere. I think I'm not really comparing or weighing any of the negativity with the, you know, positive outcomes. It's just that I do my best in my curatorial work and any writing I do to think and kind of Reason it out that they're inevitably, with creating technologies, come problems. And how those problems are overcome is more important to me sometimes than dwelling on the things that went wrong. I certainly need to explain those things. We need to kind of talk through that. how, But how those have been overcome is kind of the way I approach that.
1: I don't think you can talk about the shuttle without talking about IMAX. In- because I think... Emily, I think I can speak on your behalf as well. When you think about how we experience Shuttle as as younger people, one of our first experiences without seeing a launch perhaps was seeing The Dream is Alive, for example, which is an an incredible documentary or or film. I don't know what the correct way of calling it would be, but um, it's an incredible resource now to look back at what it was like on the Shuttle pre-Challenger. And of course... You've got an extra collection with that because you've got Discovery, and it was the first launch of Discovery. So, um, and I know you've got a history with cameras as well. So, can we talk a bit about h- how important the IMAX camera was? And and, and you got have you got that as well? Yeah,
2: yeah. So in 2012, IMAX, or actually 2011 or so, IMAX, the company contacted us and said we still have the hardware that was used to film. It's all the two they're the 2D cameras. so they switched over to 3D in sort of the early 90s, early to mid 90s. Um, there were some crossover movies that kind of used a little bit of both. But by the time you have something like the um the space Station 3D movie, obviously they're using different equipment. But yeah, they contacted us and were interested in donating it. so, And the other thing, you know, it's not just one camera, there's there's the camera that the crew used inside the um, crew compartment, but there's also a camera that then goes out and is in the payload bay and is used on multiple Mm. different... And that's actually one, sometimes one of the more fun views because you can imagine being in the shoes of an, an astronaut on an EVA in a much different way. Or if you were clinging to some piece of equipment that was being sent off into space and and so there's some incredible, just some incredible footage of all of that. But it, the thing that the way we phrase it in our exhibitry is it's bringing spaceflight down to earth. IMAX is such a huge and immersive format that has existed certainly since I was a kid. That sitting in a room where the screen kind of like pulls you in almost makes you feel like you're there. And it's one of the ways, the one of the only ways I can think of where person who is not an astronaut other than virtual reality which is much more of a thing now but you get really kind of you feel a part of something that is not what you're used to you you get a sense of floating that you may not get just you know we talk about what it's like to be in a swimming pool or something like that those things you know are similar but IMAX just has an incredible quality to really kind of suck you in and it's obviously the quality of the picture is amazing And there was a really strong dedication on the part of not only the IMAX team, but folks here at the museum who were involved in developing those concepts and the people at Lockheed Martin for actually doing all of the logistics side of things to make it happen. And the astronauts, they were trained by real movie cinematographers. They were trained to be the surrogates of those folks and those directors and really be sort of part of it, they're, they're the film crew and they're not necessarily trained as filmmakers. Um, there's probably none that are trained as filmmakers. So this one of the things I've always been fascinated by is how many roles an astronaut has to play and how many different things they have to learn. And IMAX just kind of really added this whole other layer of consideration where you've got to think about setting and landscape and you know the content of those images being so huge. And it was really successful. And that's what's really, I think, pretty amazing about it is that uh, the director, Tony Myers, who directed all all of the space movies, told me when she visited in 2012, they used every single frame that they ever captured. Hmm. So everything you can pull from any of the space IMAX movies, that's everything. And so it really kind of overwhelms you that these 70 millimeter reels of film were carried into space. There's a tactile quality to these films that doesn't exist necessarily today because it's all done digitally but when you see the IMAX camera it is this beast i appreciate the IMAX camera mostly because i come from the midwest where my father is a uh, metal worker he works in the tool and die industry and so getting to see the like the actual exterior of the camera and the machining that's done it is so handmade. it is this does not come off of a, of an assembly line or anything like that. Yeah. It, you can really appreciate its un, unique nature as an artifact, but as a pro like as a technology. And so it's just every time I get to see it, I just I, it kind of takes my breath away a little bit because it makes me personally connect with a lot of things. Those are the those are the types of stories or things I would love to be able to tell people more. Um, I do it in formats like this. It's really hard to do it in an exhibit where you get 30 words to say, this is how important this thing is. But I would love to be able to say, look at this millwork here. Look yeah. at, you know, like, you can really tell so much more by like just really examining an artifact. And that's true of Discovery. Very clearly, if you get to go stand by it, its character is kind of all on the outside. It's not that there's not character on the inside. But the very first time I saw Discovery... Not on a launch pad when it, when it rolled into our building was I said it kind of looks like a used car. Yeah, you know it's got some mileage on it. I think about it sort of the Indiana Jones. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Yeah, it really shows that mileage shows and it gives it this wonderful character.
1: Absolutely. How challenging is it to connect with a personal story with 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 the shuttle? Because and, and in some ways this may make it easier, but in some ways it makes it a lot harder. There was 135 missions. I don't even know how many astronauts flew on the shuttle the exact number
2: over 5 yeah it was hundreds Yeah so.
1: exactly like how how do you make that connect because I think it sometimes easier with the Apollo program there was 11 fly missions only 3 astronauts on each one they had a had a set goal each shuttle mission was so completely different and and telling that story in such a short space of time in a museum must be incredibly challenging
2: it's next to impossible and we can't i don't think do justice to it we've tried a few different methods um in my last exhibit we did a slideshow of all the crew portraits so we tried to pick not only the very you know normal straight laced ones but some of the really fun ones yeah we tried to highlight certain individuals who were notable people uh franklin chang diaz or ellen ochoa or someone who kind of is a um uh, you know, culturally referred to, and you know, for a particular reasons, Sally ride, obviously people like her I think that's that's kind of our driving principle in a sense is that we want to utilize stories that help us connect with anyone who can come in the door mm. so I think that it's strangely enough, my eye always lingers to two crew portraits, which are also the most unfortunate ones to kind of linger on. but if you look at the crew portraits for Challenger and Columbia for STS-107 and 51L, their crews are ridiculously diverse and just fascinating individually, like to look at their biographies, the, their backgrounds. You've got Judy Resnick, who's the is the first Jewish woman in space. You've got Krista McAuliffe. You've got, you know, and the, the list goes on and on through those two crews. And those are the kinds of instances that I like to think about the most that we could key in on to be able to draw somebody in who maybe otherwise isn't interested or maybe is just kind of aware but doesn't think it has anything to do with them and i think that's true not obviously of just astronauts and that's my big push in this new exhibit that i'm working on is that the vast majority of anyone's time involved in the space program is spent on earth yeah so I did an interview with Pam Melroy a few years ago, and one of the things I said was, what was it? What is it? Give me a picture of a day in the life. It's probably not in space is basically the very first point because you spend maybe a total of, I don't know, 13 days in space or whatever the average might be for an astronaut. But most of the people are on the ground. And so who from the hundreds of thousands of people on the ground could help me tell a story that would attract a small girl from rural Iowa who has zero connection to any of this stuff. You know, how can I pull on that thread? And so maybe it's Peggy Witts and I talk about, or maybe it's, you know, you know, you can go in a a number of different directions. You know, there's lots of great stories of people who are first generation Americans and things like that. So we're always looking for those opportunities. And, you know, you can kind of casually offhanded use the hidden figures reference But it really is that. It's like, who are those people that are making this happen? It's not just about the diversity components, but it's also about professional diversity. That's the thing I like to key in on these days is there are so many different types of jobs. I've often said it sounds silly, but you could be a security guard and be involved in space flight. You could be a librarian. You could be an accountant. You know, there's so many different jobs and it's how you leverage that. And if you're interested in leveraging your professional knowledge in the service of space exploration. That's the connection that has to get made.
1: Absolutely. So, there is so many other things I want to talk to you about right now, and I think we're going to have that conversation and we'll use your answers in another podcast in a few weeks. So no, no, we'll no, no, have no. more from you in a few weeks, but for now, that has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very, very much for your time, Dr. Jennifer Navassa.
2: Coming at you hotter than a hunk of Skylab over Australia... You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.
1: So as I said at the end there, there's a lot more to come from that interview, but that was the portion of it that was about the space shuttle. And we were very fortunate that Dr. Jennifer also gave us a little tour uh, at Advar hazy and walked us around Discovery and pointed out a few things, which was really, really amazing. It's a wonderful exhibit. So Emily, let's, let's talk Discovery. How impressed were you With that exhibit at Advar Hazy.
0: Oh, wow. I I absolutely loved it. Uh, I love how Discovery was kind of put in perspective with some other subtle artifacts because around it you had the man maneuvering unit, the one that Bruce McCandless, the second, used on his famous spacewalk 40 years ago this month, which is hard to believe it's been that long. You also had it by a Tedris, a tracking and data relay satellite overhead, a pretty high fidelity mock up of. One, I think one of the first generation ones. And you also had the uh, shuttle radar topography uh, mission radar boom by it as well, which was also a big shuttle era experiment that they put on, or not an experiment, but a radar, basically big, big ass radar. Uh, I don't know how to put it. (laughs) There we go. That's a really, that's my uh, technical way of putting it. Poor Dave here is like, oh God, we have to put (laughs) this in this. And also there's Canada arm. As well, cool I almost forgot it. They have Canada Arm next to it, which is wonderful because it's not deployed because the Canada Arm was actually fairly heavy. They could only really deploy it in space, but it's it's parked next to Discovery, and it's really cool because it's it's cool to see one. You know, I, I don't think I've seen a real one before, so I love how it's situated against like artifacts from the shuttle program. Uh, it's in front of a uh, Space Lab One as well. For those of you who may be familiar with it, course, Space yeah. Lab was a, a European uh, and American uh, laboratory that they put in space, so- nestled in the uh, shuttle's payload bay uh, for days at a time. You know, It was sort of like a, a mini space station, if you will. I really like how they have it situated because it really sort of explains the entire shuttle story. Like, this is what it did. This is the capability this thing had. It's obviously situated differently than like Atlantis and obviously Endeavor. Endeavor right now they're trying to make it look like it's on the pad, which is pretty awesome, but Discovery is basically like in landing position. And I do love that because number one it's very simple. Uh, there's no bells, whistles, spectaculars, anything like that. So I like that it's kind of simply showing okay, this is what a work how a workhorse because Discovery was the fleet workhorse, this is what the workhorse looked like at the end of its career, when it came home. And I love that. I think all the um, different shuttle exhibits in the United States, because there's only three orbital shuttles that exist, and I love how they're all situated sort of in different ways that explain the shuttle's story. You know, Atlantis is in space, or it's supposed to look like it's in space. Endeavour is supposed to look like it does before ascent when it's on the pad, and Discovery looks like a workhorse at the end of a mission. And I love that. I think it kind of is a nice full sort of a nice full circle explanation of the whole program. I, I really think that's cool. And what I love about Discovery too is um and I think you and I discussed this when we were at Udvarhazi, is you can see sort of like the um burn pattern on the tiles. You can see the the pattern of you know how the atmosphere hit it, the tiles look kind of weathered. You know, it's been through a re entry or several re entries. And I love that. It, it looks like it looks like a spaceship to me, like, uh, cause obviously it is a spaceship, but it looks like a spaceship that's done a lot of hard work. And I, I just, I love it. I think I've said this in previous episodes Udvar just in itself is just freaking incredible. Um, if you haven't been there yet, the visual when you walk into the space portion with the, you know, the SR seventy. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't been there, but the when you walk into the space portion of it, you're gonna just flip out. I certainly did. It's
1: just amazing. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So that it's worth pointing out as well. Obviously the the shuttle is on the ground and you can walk all the way around it. Um it, what what we discovered talking to to Jennifer when we were there is is where the shuttle is situated and where two of the other big planes that are in the other hangar they actually had to reinforce the concrete so those specific areas have thicker concrete underneath them just to make sure they can take the weight uh, and the shuttle area is, is one of those so it can't be moved it's there it's going to stay there it, they can't just shift it around a little bit within the museum um, so so that is a permanent exhibit there which I think is is really wonderful but there's various gangways and side bits where you can go up some stairs and get different advantages of the space shuttle as well which i think is also a really cool thing that you can see it from different perspectives and and get a a nice well-rounded view of the shuttle Uh, discovery's got that wonderful teardrop coming out of one of its windows got little black tile um, which distinguishes it from some of the others and i don't know why that happened i need to look that up but um, i do love that that unique part of of what makes discovery discovery but yeah the, the scorch marks are, are fascinating and and some of them aren't just from re-entry either some of them are from the solid rocket motors which yep, as they drifted away they just you know left a little bit of a mark on the back end of the shuttle yeah. there so it's really cool to see yep. that kind of stuff obviously the the engines that are there aren't real engines they had to take those away because part of the maintenance of the shuttle is that there's still liquids and things like that inside still leaks. It, it still leaks so it has still has things in there that as it was when it flew so all the hydraulic fuel fluids that were within the, the the cabling and all that kind of stuff all that's still there so every now and then they have to go and check that nothing else is leaked inside and ruining yep. inside but obviously within the engines with they they had hypergolic fuel which was bad news. You do not want that to leak. Yeah, you
0: don't want to get near yeah. that. You don't want to get near that yet.
1: Nobody wants to get That's near that. That's not on display. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've taken those out. But the other fascinating thing about what they've done there is obviously we'd all love to go inside, right? We would all love to go inside, um, but you can't. and And it would be too difficult for them to be able to do that. And it would just wreck it. You know that the more footfall you had going in there would not be a good idea. But what they do have is they have a video screen where they have a virtual tour of Jennifer walking you through the space shuttle, both the, the, the payload bay and the cockpit. And if you have other questions, they have a whole other thing, which I've never seen before, which is another screen where you've got a docent sitting on a screen waiting for you to go up and ask a question while they're just sitting in their own home. It's amazing. They also still had in-house docents uh, walking around. I saw one with a field trip, school field trip, with a laser pointing to the shuttle, explaining yeah, where everything was. Cool. So I, I love how they tell the story of the space shuttle, and I think it's such an important um, story to tell within within our history, within our space flight in our lifetime. It's a it's a big deal. And Emily, I thought you asked a really good question asking about. The challenges of telling that story when there's negative connotations within it as well. And how do you present the positives of the space shuttle whilst also acknowledging the flaws of the space shuttle at the same time? It's, it's one of those real, real tough things you've got to get the balance right, isn't it? Yeah. If you've listened to the show, uh, you know that Dave and I love
0: the space shuttle, you know, but 14 people died on it. Yeah. It was not a perfect system by any means, uh, it, it had flaws that unfortunately caused accidents. And loss of life. Do I still love the shuttle? Absolutely. I think it, you know, it's the space vehicle that defined pretty much my entire life. You know, one of well, not my entire life. <laughs> I don't want to mention another spacecraft's name, but still the space shuttle is the one that I grew up with, that I was there start to end. I remember almost almost everything about it. For us to not acknowledge sort of the other side of the shuttle that there were major issues with it. I feel like that had to be acknowledged in a way for the interview to be like sort of tasteful. How do you kind of reconcile these two things together? Like, okay, this is an amazing flying machine, really one of the only of its kind in the, in the world, in history, and the fact that it had some real issues that unfortunately caused death. You have to acknowledge these things. You know. You have to acknowledge the real risk it took for people to get on this thing. It wasn't like a capsule. Those are fairly, you know, nice little tiered, you know, nice little kind of jujube design, you know, nice little, it looks like a gumdrop kind of, you know. Shuttle was a lot different, you know. It was, it was enormous, and it had a lot of, it had a million complex parts to it, a lot of potential for stuff to go wrong. I thought Jennifer answered it very well, too. It, it, I think the, I've said this a million times on this show before, the history of Shuttle is really still being written. Right now. You know, I mean, there's been a million and one books written about Apollo and there's a lot of good books about Apollo. But, you know, we're seeing like space shuttle stories like Tom Jones has a book that's just come out called Space Shuttle Stories. I mean, you know, we're still seeing stories come out from the space shuttle that haven't been told before because it was such an enormous program. So. Really, I feel like it's still being written and there's still a lot we need to acknowledge about it, I guess.
1: Absolutely. What well, One of the things we learned while we were there talking of the dangers of the space shuttle and neither of us knew this, or it's just something that we've forgotten perhaps. There's so many things to try and retain, and obviously the shuttle had a hell of a lot of missions, so it's hard to retain every single fact you've ever learned about the space shuttle, but one of, one of the things we learned was that on SDS-95, which was the John Glenn flight, the the compartment door for the drag chute that, that is used for landing fell off during launch, and, and we got told about this, and which is an incre- it's just crazy, so they couldn't use a, a parachute to on landing, which isn't the end of the world, but obviously there was concerns of has anything else been damaged as that door has, has come off? And I'm sure every spacecraft this, this launch has had little niggles. Obviously we know the Apollo program had had its niggles. every spacecraft was slightly different. there would be a few little failures here and there, some harder to deal with than others, but we have to acknowledge those things more with the shuttle due to the disasters. However, back to the Smithsonian, the way it presents the shuttle at Advahezi is really special. And they they really care. You get the feeling that they really care about telling the story of the program through those artifacts. And from talking to Jennifer, that's even more obvious. They clearly care not just about telling the story now, but for as long as possible with the the incredible conservation and preservation work that they're doing as well, of which we will hear more of later on. Emily mentioned some of the big artifacts that are around Discovery that really helped to tell the story. As she said, the MMU, uh, Man Manned Maneuvering Unit, the, uh, the, some of the satellites, Space Lab, things like that. Really cool artifacts. But there are also lots of cabinets filled with items which were used by astronauts on board pens, cameras, computers, the food they ate. What was it like to be on a shuttle? How do we learn that story? They tell that too. They even helped tell the story of where it's like getting into the shuttle. There were some outfits worn by the closeout crews on display. The the diversity of the artefacts, in my opinion, really creates a a well-rounded view of the Space Shuttle. Emily, I think you are right. I I know we talk about this a lot. The the shuttle story is just beginning to get told. And we now look at how we started this podcast, talking about Endeavour in California, where, where we're going to be able to see it in launch configuration. And that just enhances the telling of that story uh, and, and shows that we're still preparing to tell the story. Um, anyway, there was a lot more of that interview, which is about being a curator, which we're piecing together with the other interviews that we did with the Sm- at the Smithsonian. So you'll hear more from Dr. Lavasa in a few weeks. Or if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, you can watch that interview in full now. Head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things for more. Plus, make sure you check out the episodes of the Poly 13 Minute podcast, which he features on. They're really great. And of course, I'll put links to that in the show notes, along with other links about Dr. Vassa and the Smithsonian. You can find the show notes by clicking on the link in the description of this episode in your podcast provider or by heading to spaceandthingspodcast.com.
2: Uh, Houston, we've got a reading here that says you're listening
0: to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. Over.
1: Okay, Emily, what has caught your eye in spaceflight this last week?
0: Okay, um, well, what has caught my eye this week is, uh, not really the happiest story, but, uh, this is from the Space Review. This article just came out last night, and of course we'll have the link in our show notes. The Mars Sample Return Program is, at, uh, according to this article, by Jeff Faust, uh, is that serious risk. We have discussed this issue on our, our show uh, several times, most recently with our interview with Casey Dreyer from the uh, Planetary Society, and uh, where we talked about um, space policy and budgets. But um, last Tuesday, it was announced that JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, would lay off 530 employees, or about 8% of its total workforce, along with 40 contractors. According to this article, and I'm reading this directly from the article, not my words, uh, the layoffs were the culmination of two intertwined threads. One is the lack of a fiscal year 2024 appropriations bill for NASA and the rest of the federal government more than four months into the fiscal year. The other is the uncertainty about the futures of Mars sample returns. Uh, One of the biggest programs there right now. JPL Director Lori Leshin, uh, I hope I'm saying her name right, wrote in a memo to lab employees, and this was published online, while we still do not have an FY24 appropriation or the final word from Congress on our MARS sample return budget allocation, we are now in a position where we must take further significant action to reduce our spending. Unfortunately, that resulted in layoffs. So there are some kind of serious uh, issues related to Mars sample returns. According to this article, NASA has established what is called the MIRT, MERT or the MSR-IRB response team. Uh, Because JPL and NASA, as we know, love uh, acronyms. This response team is going to examine alternative options. Uh, for retrieving the samples, which are currently being um, collected by the Perseverance rover on Mars that's been there for, I think, almost three years. So, yeah, that's what's going on right now. NASA, according to the article, again, these aren't my words, uh, NASA said it expected MERT, M-I-R-T, to come up with a recommendation for a new approach for MSR, Mars sample return, by March yeah, so I'm gonna keep. I know I'm gonna keep my eye on that. I'm sure Dave will as well. But kind of an unfortunate turn of events in this whole Mars sample return saga, and it it also kind of drives home how expensive <laughs> this will be. I mean, if they're laying off
1: a mm. lot of people, yeah, it's amazing how um, Casey kind of laid out exactly that this would happen, uh, that there would be layoffs. That which, yeah whilst the budget hasn't been approved and then then you're it makes everything a lot more expensive because you've then had to pay layoff fees and then you have to rehire everyone again if it then gets approved and that's how budgets end up going up anyway let listen to that interview with Casey if you haven't already um but yeah, yeah s- sad times over at JPL that's for sure
0: yeah unfortunate and uh if you're one of the people who uh unfortunately was laid off and if you're listening our thoughts are with you I- I've been in that spot in my life before and i know how not fun that is so on
1: uh, hopefully on a better note uh, has anything caught your eye over the last couple of weeks dave i have been so busy with decorating i haven't really kept my eye on the news i'll be, be brutally honest it's one of those things where you, you sometimes end up just not paying any attention but i did have a quick browse today and it looks like we might have a starship launch coming up soon which is fun and yep briefly we had 20 people in space apparently for a, a little bit last week which is a record which is pretty cool a lot yeah i mean it's pretty crazy isn't it uh there's been a new record yep. for um the total time in space for a single person uh Oleg kononenko's we haven't done that we haven't done a cosmonaut name in ages i think
0: it's oleg uh, kononenko i think that's how it's pronounced I, I i'm getting it as close as i can without a russian accent yeah o- so.
1: oleg kononenko Oh my god, he uh, <laughs> has done eighty. He's broken a record of eight hundred and seventy-nine days in space, which is pretty cool. On this flight, he will end up going past a thousand days, um, which is wow. Yeah, he'll be the first person to do that. So that's pretty cool and pretty crazy. The, the Virgin Galactic mothership lost an alignment pin during the last space launch. Um, that's obviously not the spacecraft itself, but part of the um, the plane that the spacecraft is launched upon. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know much about it, but I will put a link to that article for other people to read in the in the show notes, as well as the, the other thing I will put in is a little bit about the Axiom 3 mission, which came to an end this week as well. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I haven't looked at anything in detail, but they're the headlines that, that jumped out at me, and I will put those articles in the show notes for people to read if they wish to. And remember, when you're sleeping in space... No one can hear you dream. Okay, that's it for this week. This, of course, may end up being the start of the final 20 episodes of the podcast. Uh, We still need 19 people to sign up to our Patreon page to hit our target by show 200. So if you're willing and able to support us in that way, we'd really appreciate it. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things to do that. We will definitely be back next week,
0: though. So we look forward to spending some time with you then. Uh, thank you for listening, and thanks to all who do support this podcast financially. It really does mean a lot, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean.